lesson number 13. We're in Hosea. We'll be looking at Hosea chapter 10 this morning. Uh, and we have entered, as of last time, so, uh, really the last couple of weeks, beginning in chapter 8, uh, running through the end of chapter 10, uh, a time when God is presented, we mentioned last Sunday, as the executioner. So uh, things are escalating and the time has come for the Lord to have the orders concerning uh, the punishment uh, and the discipline of His people carried out. And there are uh, fitting punishments for the particular kinds of crimes that have been repeatedly and consistently uh, committed by the erring people of God. So we ended last Sunday there in chapter 9. If you want to look briefly at verse 15, it says, All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house, which, which I believe I mentioned is a, I think is a reference to uh, the Holy Land because he's been talking about this, this issue of, of, of exile. He says, I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Verse 16, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. And so this is that one-two blow. God is both hating them and He is loving them no more. Uh, just reinforcing the same point. And then in verse 17, Hosea sort of pulls back. Uh, that's a, sort of a wide-angle lens and summarizes and interprets these previous revelations of God's judgment uh, that is uh, imminent and on the horizon for His nation. Verse 17, My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. So this has been Israel's history. It has been a history of not listening, right? And so we know, uh, if you were to go over to Matthew 18, some of you are familiar with uh, this, uh, this uh, section in Matthew 18 on church discipline, where it says that if your brother offends you, you go to him in private, and it's only if what that you go to the next step in that process. If they do not Listen, right? And so we know that when we read that, we're not saying that a person literally doesn't, you know, they don't want to have a conversation, right? Because a lot of times we have conversations with people about what they need to be doing, but then they don't act on it, right? So they, they say that they're listening, but we know that they're really not because they don't, they don't change anything. So God's people, Israel, certainly heard what the Lord had said, but they weren't observing what the Lord had said, right? So they, they knew these things, but they did not have, uh, as we saw back in chapter 4 at the very beginning, this sort of summary of indictments. They did not know the Lord in the sense that they did not have an experiential knowledge of Him. They were not taking what they knew of Him and appropriating that into, into their actual lives and, and conduct. So this has been their history a history of not listening, of not obeying. And for that, they were consigned, verse 17 says, to be wanderers. So this is is very serious. Um, uh, In fact, there are things that here that are very uh, difficult for us to to embrace. Um, This language of God hating them and not loving them anymore, it just sort of rubs us the wrong way uh, because we have statements about God (laughs) Loving them, right? And so this will all work itself out. Uh, there is hope coming. We're going to see that 
uh, a round of that next week. But, was, but as we sort of ended last Sunday, we just made the statement that we need uh, strong medicine about how our sins offend a holy God. So in other words, we're, we're meant to get to these places in the scriptures where we are uncomfortable, right? Where the Lord says things and the Lord threatens things and the Lord follows through on things that sort of stop us in our tracks. And we don't need to just fly by that and say, well, let's get to the good news, Right? We're meant to linger sometimes with the bad news uh, because there's things for us to learn, right? There's things for us to, to understand about God and his character and how he, how he sees us and, and, and how he sees the world and what's going on and how he's going to deal with those things. So we need to linger a little longer on this theme of judgment. That's basically what we're doing Today, as we pick it up in Hosea 10, it's like if we would have just gone from last week, and if we had had, if we had, had another 45 minutes or an hour last week, we, we would have been even more, in a, maybe even discouraged at the end, because this is, in some ways, just more of the same. Okay, so we're, this is just God, he's, he's portrayed himself as a judge, he's portrayed himself as a prosecutor, an attorney, bringing charges and indictments. He's been the one who examines professed repentance, so he's the parole board, and then now he is this executioner that's actually handing down the judgments that are coming. And so that's, that's sort of the framework of where we're at. We will take a little bit of a turn, as I mentioned, when we get to chapter 11 uh, and even uh, in, the, in chapter 14 later, but we are trying to keep this, uh, keep this pace if we can, so we'll wrap things up here. Uh, Lord willing, I think it's April 8th, uh, so six more, maybe six more weeks we should be done uh, with this particular study. But let's just begin by reading Hosea 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine. Uh, He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words with worthless oaths. They make covenants, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of beth Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has departed from it. The thing itself, verse 6, will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jareb. Uh, Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Also the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel." There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? When it is my desire, I will chastise them, and the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for for himself. So with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your way, 
and your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people, and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Now, let's uh, we'll, we'll work through this one at a time, and then uh, we'll make some application at the end. So he says there in verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. Um, and so this is, this, in, in this, he compares Israel to uh, a vine, which is a prevalent image in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Uh, one is in Psalm uh, 80. Uh, verse 8 says, You removed a vine from Egypt. So this is describing the Lord's people in bondage there. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats, its wet, eats, away, eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Again, this is a speaking of a time when Israel had fallen from that, uh, that, that position of, of, of blessing. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved, Concerning his vineyard, my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hooed out a, a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes. But he says this, but it produced only worthless ones. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful Seed, how then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? So this is the picture that we need to sort of keep in our minds. Again, we talked about other places in Hosea, and this is true throughout uh, the, the prophets using this agrarian type language because this is what the people would have been familiar with. So we have an example of, of a vine here. We're going to have one of a heifer. Uh, later on, and we'll come back. There's actually some some similarities between those two uh, those two uh, metaphors. So God planted a choice a choice vine. That is the way it started out by God's blessing. But what what most often happened, as is true here, is she fertilized herself with sin. So, and as a result of that, she produced Israel produced putrid. Fruit, or as that one passage says, uh, worthless uh, grapes. So God would have to judge them for this, and you'll see the evidence for this uh, as we move on there in verse 1. She is a luxur- luxuriant vine, or Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. So there's this idea, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, about just the, self, the self-orientation of, of God's people, this uh, a self-sufficiency about pleasing themselves, taking the very things that God had blessed them with, and then sort of recycling those gifts to encourage and continue their own idolatry. 
So they, he produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, notice what happens, the more his fruit, the more altars he made. Right? So again, God is, there's this sense of, of, of blessing, and yet Israel's taking those very things and turning them to, or using them to encourage their own uh, infidelity and unfaithfulness. The richer his land, it says, the better he made the sacred pillars. And then there in verse 2, this statement, the heart is faithless. The heart is faithless. So this is proof that Israel had totally disregarded the warnings of passages such as Deuteronomy chapter 8, where the people of God were warned that when they went into the land and they experienced this prosperity, that they had to be very careful that 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 luxury and that blessing and prosperity did not lead them to, to give up on fearing God, right? To, 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 to be warned that when they got there, they would think somehow, rather than them, God doing this for them, that they would begin to think that they had done this themselves, right? And begin to give themselves the credit for it. And this is just the proof that they did not heed those, those uh, earlier uh, warnings, when Israel came into a position of prosperity and the blessing of God, they, they looked to themselves and stopped trusting God and became, uh, became even more self-sufficient. So what results here is a seeming prosperity which did nothing but fuel their idolatry all the more. So God will execute the judgments that He promised to bring all along, but in His love He will, in in the future, once again, bless the special vine of his choice. We sort of get a sneak peek of this in Hosea chapter 14, verse 7, where it says, Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. And So we'll get to, to that later on. But basically what Hosea is saying here is this is the way, this is the way that Israel started out. Israel started out as a luxuriant vine, and then we see all of this degradation and this unfaithfulness, but in the end, God will make it, as I said, there at the end, by the time we get to the end of the book, God will make it a luxurious vine again. Now back to those words of judgment, chapter chapter 10, verse 2, the heart is faithless, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy, destroy their sacred pillars. So God is going to, to bring all of that down, all of the things that the, the people were, they were taking these resources, they were taking this blessing, and they were using it to, to build additional places of idolatry and, and syncretistic worship. Uh, again, we said they were not giving up their sacrifices, right? They were not giving up their their religiosity so they were continuing to worship but it was either outright pagan worship or it was this idea of taking some of those pagan pagan practices and combining them with the stipulations that God gave to them in his law that's what we call that this that concept of syncretism and so God says listen all of that that you're doing in the end I'm going to bring all of that down okay I'm going to destroy all of these things that you have constructed that have been the vehicles by which you have, you have been practicing this shallow and false worship. So he says all, all, of the, all of those exhibitions of idolatry and disobedience I'm going to, to bring down. And then in verses 3 to 5, we have, 
even more announcements and reinforcements of God's judgments that will follow. Verse 3, Surely now they will say, We have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? So it sounds like, again, this is one of those places where it sounds like the people are on the brink of repenting. It's sort of like they're, they're beginning, you read this and you think, okay, they're, they're, they're understanding that, you know, if you go back into their history, again, we, we've referenced this before, them going back and their desire to be like the other nations and to have a king, and then they wanted the king to be a king that they wanted, right? So they had their own, in, in their own minds, the criteria for the kind of king that they wanted. And it's as if they're saying here, they're looking back over that history and they're realizing that that's really not been... That's not really been the thing that has, has kept them on track. That, 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 that there, there was a, a, a pride in that and a self-sufficiency in that. And, and they seem to be acknowledging their lack of reverence for God and their lack of worship of the Lord. So it sounds like pre-repentance words. You think maybe they are beginning to, to turn. But as we've seen before... Not so fast, right? You can have a form of sorrow that does not lead to repentance, okay? Now, we see examples of this in, in the Old Testament. We've already seen an example of this back in our earlier chapter of, of Hosea. But it, uh, we could go to a New Testament passage, which gives us, uh, it's even more plain to us, even more explicit, and that would be Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians uh, or to the Corinthians there in the Second uh, Corinthians 7, where Paul's describing after having sort of, he's gotten onto, if you will, sort of gotten onto the church about their lack of loyalty, their lack of love for him, their, the ease at which they uh, sort of gave up on the Apostle Paul and allowed other uh, false teachers to come in and to undermine that relationship that they had with Paul who had invested so much in them. But we get to 2 Corinthians, and there's demonstrations in the Corinthian church that they have actually repented of that, right? That they actually have recognized that that was not right. Paul's getting report of this, and then he sort of, he, he, he brings in a lot of these ideas of regret and sorrow and repentance and those types of things in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So he's just saying, I, didn't, I don't like the idea of making you sorrowful, but, but I do like the idea of you being sorrowful enough to where it's led to genuine repentance in your life. So he says, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul says there is a sorrow in the Christian life that is, as he says, according to the will of God, which is a, a sorrow that produces repentance without regret. What that, I think he's getting at there is he's saying that 
People that are truly repentant do not regret the decision to repent. They do not regret giving up their sin, right? People that say that they're repentant and then they're looking back at their sin and kind of wishing they didn't have to give that up, that is worldly sorrow, okay? So it's like they're torn between actually doing what is right, following the Lord, turning from their sin, and then they're looking at their sin over here and going, man, I wish I didn't have to, I wish I didn't have to give that up, right? If you have a repentance without regret, you turn your back on sin and you turn to the Lord and you have no, you're not, you don't second guess that, right? I mean, you don't long for that, right? You don't look back at that and wish you could still have it. You're grateful to be out of that, right? You're grateful to have been able to shed that, right? And to be right and restored with, with the Lord. So this was Israel. Israel had not that, but they had a so-called repentance, a shallow repentance, a pseudo, a false repentance, but a repentance with regret, right? So when you had these, when you see these examples of of Israel's repentance, there's this sense in which they seem to be want they in, in 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 one way they sort of want to do the right thing they want to repent but they're still hanging on right they seem to always be hanging on to their sin and so they did not have what we refer to as genuine genuine repentance or repentance according to the will of God or a repentance that leads to salvation or a uh, re- re- repentance that leads to life right they had they had a a worldly sorrow and paul says there that this is the kind of thing that produces death not life now that is confirmed by god's analysis of their professions in verse 4 they speak mere words right so they say oh we haven't revered the lord and if we just stop there we're like here it is right this is the turning point <laughs> but then we have these times where we think that, but then the thing that immediately follows that is an analysis of God to say, mm, that's not real. It's not real. So, so God says here, they speak mere words. With worthless oaths, they make covenants, and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. <laughs> it's just saying, these people say that they're repentant, but they make they make empty promises, right? They say, we're going to leave our sin, we're going to be faithful to God, but their commitment to be faithful is, is it's just an empty oath, right? All these promises and then no follow-through. And God sees right through that, right through their, their phony words. And so judgment will fall, and God will use the instrument of Assyria to chasten His people, and once the northern kingdom collapses, notice what follows. Verse 5. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avin, which we've seen. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry over it, uh, over its glory, since it has departed from it. And the thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jareb, Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. So the calf, this is the calf idol of Samaria. Okay, we've, we've talked about this before, but this, this calf idol of Samaria will be, essentially will be carted off, 
And you'll remember this was the centerpiece of Israel's idolatry. And we saw this word picture earlier back in chapter 4, verse 15, says, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal or up to Beth-Avin and take the oath as the Lord lives. And what we learned there was that Beth-Avin, as best as we can tell, Beth-Avin is really the, lo- the location Bethel, but it's, 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 uh, it's been renamed, right? So there's, a, there's this, this, um, this sort of play on words, if you will, or this, this saying that this was this Bethel, which means house of God, has become Beth-Avin, which is translated as house of iniquity or house of wickedness. So, so it's like you've taken this, uh, this place of acceptable worship and you've turned it into a place in which you've committed your pagan, in, your pagan worship and idolatry. It also pops up in chapter 5, verse 8, uh, and again in chapter 8, verse 5. In chapter 8, verse 5, it says, He has rejected your calf... O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. So this had gone from a place where, if you go back into the time of the patriarchs, this was, this was a location in Israel's history, where the patriarchs and other true worshipers of Yahweh had sacrificed to the Lord, it had gone from that to a place of idol worship and syncretistic worship that was an abomination to the Lord. Now, this departure of the calf idol would become part of the tribute to the great king of Assyria, And this would elicit all kinds of feelings of dread and grief and shame on the part of the people, even mentions here, even the priests. But the question is, over what? (laughs) There's grief, they're they're upset, there is shame, all that stuff is going on. But the question is, why are are they feeling those things? Where is that coming from? Is it over over their sin (laughs) that they sense grief? Are they upset about their sin? Are they upset about the fact that, uh, that they have be, been un, as unfaithful as they have been? And what the text tells us here is it's not their sin that they were broken and grieved over. It was the fact that their calf <laughs> was taken away. Right? I mean, that's what he's saying is that this, this, this uh, idol, this calf idol is going to be carted off and given as tribute to the king of Assyria and the people are going to be upset... Not because of what they did against the Lord. They're going to be upset because their idol was taken away. Right? Again, it's this idea, if you are truly repentant, then you're not grieving over losing the very thing that was a part of your unfaithfulness. Right? You're glad to give that up, but that's not at all what's going on with the people. They are grieving. They are uh, experiencing this dread and shame really from the leaders all the way down because their idolatry has been interrupted. Now, tying back into verse 3, 
Their king is mentioned again. Verse 7, Samaria will be cut off with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Literally, Samaria, her king has been cut off. So, and this is, this is like uh, we mentioned last time concerning uh, Hosea chapter 9, verse 7. It uses this, prof- we call it the prophetic perfect tense, tense, which means that though this event is in the future, because these things are still being predicted that they're going to happen, yet from God's perspective, these things are as good as done when it comes to His prophetic plan. Right? So it's just saying, this, this is going to happen, but it's spoken of really, if you look at the tense, it's, it's spoken of in a past tense. Like, this is as good as done from God's perspective. And it, not only is it going to happen, it's going to happen swiftly, right? This idea, when it says they're like a stick on the surface of the water... Uh, don't think of, you know, a pond with a stick floating uh, on the top of the water. Think of a swift river and a twig on top of the water, right, on top of the rapids. In other words, this is the, the, the picture here is not about something just calmly floating, right, and being buoyant. This is about something being swept away, right, that that's how quick this judgment is going to come. It's going to happen swiftly like a twig caught up in the rapids of a raging river, just sort of swept along, or you know, say swept away. Verse 8, Also the high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. And so this is a reference to all of those high places. You know, you, would, you, find these, you find this in Chronicles and Kings. You know, if you had a good king, the good king would destroy the high places, right? They would tear down the altars. If you had an evil king, they encouraged the idol worship, right? And made even more places of false worship, made even more high places, made even more uh, of these, these places of sacrifice and worship. And so you have these many high places throughout Israel where, again, you had either pagan or syncretistic worship taking place. And it says this, Then they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. A very very different cry from those words of false repentance found in verse 3. Now, interestingly, these words are similar to what we find in a couple of New Testament passages. You could jot these down. One of them is Luke 23. Uh, This is actually during the time of when Jesus has been brought, has been tried, um, he has been uh, beaten and, and abused. And then it says there in Luke 23, 26, they had, when they had led him away, they seized a man. This is uh, Simon of Cyrene coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. Again, this not necessarily women that were faithful disciples of Christ, but this would have been potentially uh, sort of a, a formal mourners, right? So it doesn't mean that they were actually mourning over the fact that they loved Jesus, right, and what was happening to him. These would have been like professional mourners. And so there, there's these women, they were mourning and lamenting, and Jesus turning to them said... Verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. 
So again, there's a, there's a, a, a direct tie back to this passage in Hosea in Luke 23, and then we also have this in Revelation chapter 6, which is in conjunction with the sixth uh, seal of judgment that was terrorizing the whole earth at that time, Revelation 6.16, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Okay? So that, that is the, the, the kind of, of judgment uh, that is coming. Uh, and in these references here, uh, because of the day of the Lord, the wrath of God is coming down, and these people are, are crying out in desperation for, for literally for, these, for the mountains and hills to collapse in on us. Then in verse 9, we have another reference to Gibeah. It says, From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? So he's saying it, start, it starts in Gibeah, and we looked at this last week, at the significance of the treachery that took place there, as detailed in Judges chapters 19 and 20. So he's just saying it began back then, and whatever happened back then, the same was true in Hosea's day. So that same, that same murderous, that same treacherous activity that took place in the early years of the life of Israel, he's just saying... That took place then, and that has continued. And in fact, O Israel, he says here in verse 9, there they stand. It's like they're saying, and there they are. You know, and just like they were back then, here they are, there they stand, and, it, and nothing has really changed. Nothing has changed. Whatever has happened, the same is true. It has continued throughout their history. And right there... Uh, will they fall according to God's perfect schedule and God's chosen method? Verse 10, when it is my desire, I will chasten them and the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. So God chooses the timing when it is my desire, right? God chooses the timing of these things. God chooses the instrument of these things. You go over to Isaiah chapter 10, where God is speaking about this coming judgment and, and the fact that God is, is, is in his own wisdom. He is laying all of this out. He says there in Isaiah 10, 1, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil and that they may, so that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and, the, and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. So he's just saying, when I decide, God says, when I decide to do this, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> there, is, there is nowhere you can turn. There is nothing that you can depend on to bail you out of this. There is nowhere to flee for help. Your money is not going to deliver you when that comes. 
your resources, your relationships, nothing is going to, to be an adequate shelter against God's righteous anger. And then he speaks to the instrument. So in Isaiah 10, he's talking, he's addressing the people, talking about this judgment. But then he says this, because the, the instrument is Assyria, right? So he says there in verse 5, Woe to, to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. So he's saying, the uh, Assyria doesn't intend to do this, right? But they're doing exactly what I intend, right, for them to be doing. So it's not necessarily their intention, but God is accomplishing His purposes. Verse 8, for it says, are not my princes all kings? And so it's as if Assyria is just saying, my, my princes are better than your kings. I mean, this is the sort of the arrogance and the boasting uh, of, of, the, of the Assyrian uh, empire at that particular time, at the height of its power. Verse 9, is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad? Or Samaria, like Damascus, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than the house of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For He has said... By the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures, and like a mighty man I brought down their inhabitants, and my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest, and as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? It's just like the Lord is saying, I'm going to use Assyria in this way, but Assyria thinks they're, they're the ones that are actually doing this, right? They're claiming, again, they're claiming the credit. God doesn't like that, folks. God doesn't like it when he does something and then we brag about that we did it, right? And so he's going to use Assyria as a chastening instrument, as a rod, and as a staff in his hands. But then because of the very arrogance of Assyria and claiming that they are the ones who did this, God is going to then turn around and He's going to judge them for what they've done. And so He asked this question, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. And the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. There's going, to be, there's going to be so few left that a child can count them, right? So this is how and when God is going to bring His judgment to pass. Uh, 
He is going to use the violent and brutal nation of Assyria to accomplish his purposes. And once he has used them to the fullest extent, they themselves will fall under his judgment. But there will be a double guilt for Israel because of the fact that they were given much. So he mentions this idea of double guilt because there is greater accountability for those who have greater privilege. So he's just saying, listen, the Assyrians will be held accountable for what they do, but there's double guilt when we're talking about God's people because they knew, right? They had these warnings. In fact, Paul talks about this. He says in Romans, talks about God not showing partiality, right? But he also makes statements in there about the fact that there is a greater accountability for those who've been given the light, right? Who've been given God's revelation, who've been given... Uh, who've been allowed to, to, to know who the Lord is and how the Lord operates and even have received these promises and warnings. There's greater accountability. Verse 11. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for himself. So he says... Uh, Ephraim was a trained heifer, a trained calf. It's like saying earlier where Israel is a luxuriant vine. So this is how, it's just another way of sort of looking back to the good old days and saying this is, what, this is the way it was. This is how she started out. But over time she has become a stubborn cow. Hosea chapter 4 verse 16 said this, Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? So just saying, there was a time when she would go out and, and she would just want, she just wants to serve, right? There's, she, she, would, she would go out and do this with ease, but soon she became difficult and stubborn and resistant, and God would need to harness her. She would, God would harness Ephraim and Judah... The southern kingdom will plow and harrow for himself, as if the Lord is saying, you're on your own, but your time is coming, right? So I'm going to put a yoke, right? I'm going to, to cart the, is, the, the northern kingdom. They're going to be carted away into captivity. And then eventually, right, Judah, you're going you're gonna to do this, but you're going to do it without me, right? It's that, it's that sort of a... It's that idea we talked about in that Romans 1 sort of, oh, you want that? Well, you can have it. Just go down that road, you know? So he's like, you're, you're going to do this. You're going to plow, okay? You're going to do this for yourself, <laughs> all right? And I'm going to let you go down that road. But just know it may be another 120, 130 years, but your, your day of judgment is going to come too. Then we have this series of exhortations to repent. Verse 12, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness. This is the term for loyalty or steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. So in the middle of all this, you say, it's time, folks, it is time. Today is the day of salvation. <laughs> it is time to repent. In fact, it's, it's overdue. Okay, this is overdue. And yet, sadly, we've come to see that even though Israel's been given these opportunities along the way to repent, they, they don't 
They don't do it. They do the opposite. Verse 13, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. I mean, this is, again, one of those just summary statements. Why is all of this happening? Because you have trusted in yourself. Right? It's, it, again, it goes all the way back to those, that self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-wisdom, all of that stuff. Right? That is the problem. You have not trusted in God. You have trusted in your own way, and you have trusted in your own strength, in your numerous warriors. So you think you can protect yourselves. You think that in trusting your own resources and then trusting in these alliances that you've made with other peoples and other nations in order to come and rescue you, that's actually, that's actually backfired on you, Right? And we, we, we discussed this, how at times it, the northern kingdom actually looked to Assyria for help, right? Well, guess who's coming to, to basically annihilate them, right? Assyria, right? So all, all of that, all of that uh, bargaining and all of that, you know, hey, let's strike a deal, that's, that's, been the, that's been now come back to bite them. It's actually a part of their, of their downfall. And so all of that's going to fail, Verse 14, therefore a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. So this, this uh, idea of tumult, it's used over in, uh, I think it's in Amos, I think it's used in Nahum to describe. This is, the, this is used in the context of the, the noise and the confusion and chaos of war. Of battle, so it's just it's basically a way of just saying war is coming, war is coming, and the walls and the outer defenses are going to be breached because that's what would happen, right? When com- when when countries or nations would invade, they would def- they would immediately knock out those de- defenses, right? So that's going to happen. Utter carnage is going to ensue, and then he says this: like when Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel, which is likely a reference to uh, Shalmaneser V. This is a, the king of Assyria from 727 to 722 B.C. We don't, there's a line of these guys, so we don't know exactly what, uh, what the reference is to, and we don't know exactly this, what this location is all about. So we don't know exactly the event. All we know is that if Hosea is bringing this up to the people and using it as a reference point to say, this is going to happen just like it happened when so-and-so did so-and-so at so-and-so. Now, if, if, if he's going to say that, your assumption is they know what he's talking about, right? Or else what's the point, right? I mean, what, what, why would you bring up something like that? So I'm just saying we don't necessarily know all the details behind this, but you would assume they would know that, and the way I would describe it is this. If I said to you, you know what? It's going to be like when Osama bin Laden did that on 9-11, right? And so you hear a name, and you hear a time, and you hear an event, and everybody in here knows what that's about, right? And that tells you what? It tells you about the severity of what's coming, right? Where This isn't a game. This is The Lord is going to do this. And if I threw that name out there with that date and that event, you would go, whoa. Okay, so 
this is not, this is not light, this is heavy, right? We, we need to be taking this seriously. I'm saying that's the whole point of him bringing this up. Whatever he's referencing here, it's as if he's saying it's like that. You remember that guy and you remember what he did, right? That's what's coming. Verse 15, thus, it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. The phrase there is literally the evil of your evil, okay? Because of the evil of your evil, because of the wickedness of your wickedness, at dawn the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Now, what king is he talking about? Well, he's talking, I think, about the last king of the northern kingdom, King Hoshea. This is over in 2 Kings chapter 17. It says there in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. And in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So there you have it. That was the the end of their kingship. This final king, Assyria, when the the king of Assyria comes, he realizes that this king in in Israel has been uh, double dealing. He's been promising things over here, and then he's not been doing the same for him. And so because of that, he's... He's bound and taken away as the people are. And so we, we get to this very, the end of, of this long section of bad news for Israel. Banishment from the Lord's land, an Egyptian-like bondage in Assyria, an entire generation of children lost, the slaughter of infants, the Lord's hatred, fortresses demolished, and their kingship abolished. Why did all of that come to pass? Why why did the people not heed? Why did the people persist in their wickedness? Well, for the same reasons that we do do it, right? Why do we sometimes persist in, in our sin? Why do we not repent when we should? For the same reasons, pride, right? Self sufficiency. Because we don't fear the Lord. Right? We we do not have a proper view of of the Lord. And why is it that we are generally uncomfortable? And if you'll put that up there, um, Charlie, just a few little applications here, we'll wind up. Why is it that we are generally uncomfortable with this presentation of God as the prosecutor and jury and judge and executioner? Why is it that, just like last week, when we get to the end, we get to the end of chapter 9, here we get to the end of chapter 10, why is it that we're so uncomfortable with this language? Why is it that we're so bothered by this sort of twig being just swept away and, 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 and the death of, of mothers and infants and lineage 
being cut off and, and all of this retribution and judgment? Why is it that we, we are bothered by that and have a hard time swallowing that? Uh, David Wells, I mentioned this at our conference a couple of weeks ago in his book, God in the Wasteland, writes that in many churches today, people have a weightlessness of God, right? They have a featherweight view of God, and it's because they don't, it's because they don't understand the character of God, then therefore they don't have a proper fear of God, and because they don't have a proper fear of God, they don't have a proper love for God, and because they don't have a proper love for God, they don't trust and obey God. And we tend to get focused in on why aren't people trusting and obeying God? Well, you got to go backwards a couple of steps, right? They don't trust Him because they don't love Him. They have a hard time <clears throat> drawing near to Him and putting their entrusting their lives into His hands because they don't love Him. Well, why don't they love Him? Because they don't fear Him, right? It's as if the fear of God needs to precede love for God because if it doesn't, then what we end up with is a sentimental kind of love for God. We begin to see love for God as just really love for His gifts, right? And so God gives us, we go into the land, so to speak, uh, sort of spiritually speaking, and then God blesses us with these things, and then we get enamored with the blessings of God. And then we say that we love Him, but what we're really saying is we love it when He gives us those things. (laughs) When He gives us that, we love when He does that. But then what we find out is when God begins to take those things away our love for God goes downhill, right? It, it wanes when He does that. And so we don't live like Job. We don't, we don't say as the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, right? We say the Lord gives and I wish He would keep giving. And stop taking it away, right? Keep giving it to us. And this is the, where the nation of Israel had gotten to. And it, and it caused them to lose their fear of God. And when that's gone, folks, I mean, we're off the rails, right? But when we stop fearing the Lord, we're in big trouble. And it leads to this weightlessness of God. So, why do we? Why do these things rub us wrong? Let me give you a couple of things, uh, four things here. One, we have a hard time with this because we have a lightweight view of God's righteousness. Right, the fact that 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 God cannot sin and that God cannot overlook sin. Habakkuk one thirteen says, "Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor." We lose sight of the righteousness of God. We think that God can, that he'll, well, he hates sins most, most of the time, or most sins, but we don't see that fierce righteousness that God has, right? He cannot look upon it. He cannot tolerate it. He will not sweep it under the rug. He himself is not a part of it, right? And we lose sight of that. Secondly, because we have a, light view, a lightweight view of sin, So we have a lightweight view of God's righteousness. We also have a lightweight view of sin, not recognizing the heinous nature of sin itself. The fact that sin grieves God is provocative to God, it's wearisome to God, and it's detestable to God. We don't think much about that, right? And, and, And we don't think about the fact that any single sin is enough to send us to hell. Just one, folks. It's not a big one. It doesn't have to be a big one. Or a little one, right? Any sin, any sin is enough to send us to hell. In fact, as J.I. Packer said this, there are no small sins against a great God. There are no small sins against a great God. So this bothers us because we, I think, just exposes the fact that we have a lightweight view 
of sin. Thirdly, it bugs us because we have a lightweight view of love. We have a lightweight view of love. Our love, our view of love is sometimes nothing more than indulgent affection that tolerates everything and refuses to deal with matters that affect our relationships. Right? We don't really understand God's kind of love. God loves His people, right? But because He loves them, He disciplines them. He chastens them, right? And we're so used to the kind of love that, that just embraces everything, right? Let's not, let's not be discerning. Let's not discri- discriminate. Let's just accept all of it. And yet Paul prayed for the Philippian church. Listen to this, Philippians 1.9. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. <laughs> right? Knowledge and discernment. You cannot separate knowledge and discernment and love. Right? And what we have embraced many times is a love without knowledge and a love without discernment. Right? Just, just bring the walls down. Forget about what we know. And let's just love everybody. Right? Well, that's what got the Corinthian church into trouble. Remember that? They thought they were loving, but what they were doing was they were tolerating sin. Right? And that's why Paul, I think, comes back in 1 Corinthians 13 and actually tells them, let me tell you what love is. <laughs> because the, he, he understood they had, they had an unbiblical view of what love is. And so he actually ex- does an extended description there of what the love of God is all about. And then finally, I would say this, because we have a lightweight view of judgment itself. We chafe against it. We recoil at the thought of accountability to God. Uh, The masses sit smug in in their self-assured cynicism, but one day they will tremble in terror as they wait on our omniscient God to render His verdict and sentencing. But Christians ought not to contest this truth of divine judgment and retribution, they ought to be calling upon others to rejoice in it. Psalm 96 says this, verse 9, Worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before Him all the earth, say among the nations, so this is, a, this is like encouraging us in our worship, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, indeed the world is firmly established, it will not be moved, He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. And He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Right? We need to be like like rejoicing in God's judgment rather than having this sort of aversion to it. Right? We ought to rejoice. Now, of course... Only those who have confidence in Christ's work can do that, right? I mean, that, that would dare to sing about such a thing is God's judgment because we stand forgiven. But forgiveness is not meant to cancel out an appropriate fear of God. It is meant to reinforce it. That's why the psalmist says this, Psalm 130, verse 4, Bless, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. See, we think forgiveness says, don't be afraid of God anymore because you're forgiven. But there he says, no, the forgiveness of God is meant to lead you to fear Him. It doesn't cancel that out. So we have to keep these things in mind. Or as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty two, behold then the kindness and severity of God. It doesn't say, behold then the kindness or severity. Right? It's not kindness or severity. It's behold this, the kindness and severity 
of God, the goodness and harshness of God. Only then will we be free from the bad kind of fear that enslaves the fearer. And only then will we be truly free to love Christ and to trust and to obey him. All right, so we need a good dose of that, folks. I mean, a good dose of an understanding, a biblical view of judgment, sin, righteousness, and the love of God, right? And the reason, I think, why we are bothered and disturbed by some of what the prophets have to say is because we just don't understand that like we should. So we need it. It's taken us a while to sort of work through those chapters on those themes of judgment and sin, but it's needful for us and will help us to be more, I think, balanced in our, our view of Christian, Christian life. So we'll come back next time. We'll look at uh, the next chapter, and we'll keep plugging along. And uh, again, Lord willing, about five or six more Sundays, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Okay, thank you for your time.